I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRX, it's the radio variety show that once asked Salman Rushdie about emojis... Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with humorist Mo Rocca, writer Heather Crystal, with music from Jimmy Harrod and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire. Thank you. Thank you, Elena Passarello, and thanks everybody for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have a great show for you this week. Mm -hmm. Some guests that we're so excited to talk to. Uh, The theme that we picked this week, with apologies to Drake, is (laughs) In Our Feelings. Yes. Yeah, we're very in our feelings this week. That's going to make sense as the various guests come out here. But we asked this crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater to fill out a little questionnaire. And we asked them, what do you do to cheer yourself up? I was thinking about this today. Like, what do I do to cheer myself up? Mm -hmm. And I think there's one tried and true thing that I can do to sort of change my mood. And it's to watch HGTV. Specifically one of those House Hunters shows. Uh Uh-huh. Because I become so emotionally invested <laughs> in if they're going to pick the Sunny Rambler near her family <laughs> or the three-bedroom outside of town with the man cave for Tim. <laughs> I, am, like, I don't have time to think about my own problems because I am so... I have such strong opinions about the house and which one they should pick, even though I know the show is completely fake. You don't just like casually look at three houses no. and with a camera crew right. and then meet up with your significant other at like a generic brew pub right. <laughs> and then like just decide we're going to take that one and then you just own the house. Like really yeah, like no. here in Portland, buying a house is if you see a house you like, you steal the for sale sign mm-hmm. out of the yard. You yeah. dig it up. 
Yeah. And you throw it in the Willamette River. Mm -hmm. So no one knows the house is for sale. I bought my house in Oregon so fast because I was so terrified. I didn't even register what color it was. And that's why I live in a bright purple house. (laughs) Seriously? I'm kidding. We walked in and we could afford it and we didn't think it was haunted. And we were just like, we made an offer before the open house began and had essentially an agreement before the next business day. And then we went to take a look at it for the first inspection. And I was like, this house is purple. Um, what do you What do you do to cheer yourself up? Oh, uh, I uh, I'm usually pretty cheerful. I've noticed. Uh, but I do have there are a couple of memories that I have from my life that cheer me up no matter what. But I'm afraid that if I think about them too much, I'm going to wear them out. So I just push them down so that I forget about them. So then when I'm really, really sad, I remember them. and You save them for yeah, a special I, sad occasion. I, I'm really good at pushing all emotions, all my feelings. Like, I'm not in my feelings. Like, my feelings are in me, and they're, like, way down here Yeah, all the time. Can I ask, like, what are the memories? Both of them are memories from when I've laughed so hard I couldn't take it. Like, it's just, like, my physically just so full of glee that I was just beside myself. When I was like seven years old, I was riding in the car with my mom in Atlanta past this place called the Pizza Inn, which was like a knockoff Pizza Hut. (laughs) So at the Pizza Inn, for some reason, we were stopped at a stoplight and the marquee where it says like Pizza 599 or whatever, somebody had rearranged the letters so that it just said (laughs) Broif. B-R-O-I-F. And every time I think about it, I just lose my mind because it's like, what was it before it said broif? No words like mixed up to make the word broif. Was it like broiled food? Like- <laughs> wow. It's just so good. It is impossible to be sad when you are contemplating the word broif. Hey, would you like to hear what the audience had to say? Uh, yeah, I would. A lot. The first one is from Fred. Okay. And uh, the thing that Fred does to cheer himself up is sniff the baby. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I am so in for that. (laughs) They do smell good. Um, Here's one from Herman. Herman's uh, thing to do to cheer himself up is hike and drink bourbon. That's a pretty good combination. Yeah. There, There are some of those hikes where there is alcohol at the end of the hike. There's one called, like, uh, Mailbox Point up in Washington State. Okay. And you hike up this thing, and in this kind of mailbox is often hard alcohol. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. We just made some new fans of hiking yeah. out there. You're really turning me around on this hiking thing, yeah. Burbank. That's great. <laughs> we have somebody waiting just off stage who has spent a lot of time over the past years in her feelings and also in the feelings of a lot of other people as she's been working on her latest project. It's called The Crying Book. It researches what crying is, why we do it, and how grief and joy are actually intertwined throughout our lives. Please welcome Heather Crystal to Livewire. Heather, welcome to the show. Um, So this book started off as an attempt by you to map everywhere that you had cried in your (laughs) life, basically. Yes, yes. That was my idea when I I started. It turns out it's a very bad idea. Um, Are you a big crier? Yes. 
So there are like a lot of places where you've cried. It would cried. just be every place I'd ever lived. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which, which is not all that interesting. Um, so it turns out that if you write a book, instead of making a map, something else happens. Yeah. Um, you talk about something called the International Study of Adult Crying. What, what did they find out? Uh, well, the, the really interesting thing that I found out from them, um, I was trying to get some sort of like really practical advice about crying since I did it so much. Um, <laughs> and they say that it's best to cry either alone or with one other person present. Because if you cry with more people present, you might be made to feel shame. Huh. One of the other things that you write about in this book, which I had never thought about, Heather, is that there's a very big difference between crying near your car uh -huh. and crying in your car. It's a, there's a huge signal that you send when you cry near a car because it, you need help. You know, yeah. there, there's, there's a sign that you're sending out into the world that assistance is needed in some fashion. But equally, you're sending a big sign if you're crying inside your car. You should not knock on the door, yeah. the window mm. of a person who's crying in their car. They're, they're in there because they're seeking privacy. Um, and if you're finding yourself crying in public, um, I would suggest finding a car if you're wanting, if you're wanting some <laughs> privacy. Yeah. I don't know if you have the research on this. Would you say that cars are the place that people cry? I feel like I have myself observed hundreds of people crying in their cars. It is a, like, once a week, I'll pull up at a light and look over and someone will be crying in their car. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Some really callous people in the audience here at the Alberta Race Theater. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, there's something interesting about that environment, I feel, because it is sort of private. And also, I think your brain is engaged with the driving. You're doing something that's not that hard, but it's just enough that it sort of, like, really lets stuff come to the surface. Yes, yeah. I mean, well, our, our minds start to wander as we're driving, right? And that can be a wonderful thing, and it can lead us to, you know, thinking of ideas for songs or books or whatever, uh, you know, a nice gift that you want to give for somebody or a memory of Broif. Um, <laughs> but, um, but also, it, it might bring some other things up to the surface that you weren't expecting to. Um, and it can be awfully lonely in that space, too. Yeah. You, speaking of cars, you wrote in the book that you're trying to, or I guess you said you had come up with a system for not crying about roadkill, which sounds almost like a joke, but like it is serious. Last night I was driving, this sounds like I'm making this up. I was driving in Virginia last night on this like I-95, has like eight lanes, and it was 11 o'clock at night and a deer ran in front of the car and somehow I swerved. Thank God there was nobody to the side of me. I swerved, but I, the deer didn't get hit, I'm happy to report. But I like saw the deer's eye and the deer was freaked out. And I have not stopped thinking about it for like 24 hours. I like, have intrusive thoughts about roadkill and potential roadkill. Okay, I, I hear you. I got to the point where it wasn't just roadkill, but I would see something that I thought was roadkill mm -hmm. in the road. You've all had this experience where you like see a, a t-shirt but it's not a t-shirt, it's, you know, it's a dead deer, and you have all of your feelings, and then you get closer, and you see that it's a t-shirt, but you still have the feelings. Like, they've come up, you've made them, and you have nowhere to put them. There's no animal to attach them to, you just have to keep driving. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRX. We're talking to writer Heather Crystal. Her new book is The Crying Book, Don't Go Anywhere. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? 
Every week we share live show dates there as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand-up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are chatting with writer Heather Crystal. Her latest book is The Crying Book. Uh, One of the things that you write about in this book is the tears of white women being weaponized. Can you explain that? Yeah, uh, being weaponized by those white women. Um, there's, uh, There's a long history of white women either shedding tears or pretending to shed tears in order to cause violence to happen against a, a black person or a person of color. Uh, that's you know at the core of lynching in many cases in our history. And uh, it was a history that I very much um, wanted to think through as I wrote this book. It seemed impossible to write a book about crying without, without engaging with this, this history and the ongoing effects of white women's tears. I was reading through the book while I was listening to the testimony of the ambassador to Ukraine and the way that people were talking on Twitter and uh, the commentators were talking whether or not tears would be shed on behalf of this female ambassador. And I couldn't help but thinking about that idea of that weaponry in your book, which of course is used in, in sort of a different situation. But some people thought that if she cried, then we'd be, I think they said the phrase, playing the woman card. And other people thought that if she didn't cry, that it would be, uh, we would be ignoring the fact that it's okay to professionally express yourself in this way if you're under an intensely stressful situation. And I, I just couldn't help but think how relevant so much of what you discuss in a book that's about the self, right? A book that's about you kind of mapping your, the history of crying was just when I clicked on the radio this morning. I cry every time I turn on the news. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> that's legit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that it can feel sometimes as a woman that you're caught in a position where you're read in ways you don't want to be read, whether you cry or you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the same way that you get read in ways that you don't want to be read if you decide to have children or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, any behavior <laughs> is going to be up for scrutiny. But yeah, I think that um, tears fall according to gravity, but they are read in the world according to the various systems of power that we move through in our daily lives. And so if we look at tears, we end up understanding more about those systems of power and how they organize our lives and how they structure violence within lives. Great. Yeah, totally. Um, We're talking to Heather Crystal about her book, The Crying Book, here on Livewire. One of the things that you write about in the book is a point where you're working, I think it's on a piece of poetry, and your daughter... Uh, comes up and she's asking you about it and she's pretty young at the time and I if I understood right she started just sort of highlighting random parts of it and you include that in the book it's a really good poem doesn't that kind of undercut the idea of poetry being created by adults (laughs) like is that a bummer to realize that her randomly highlighting made a good poem no it's a joy oh thank god for that I mean I I'm a person who very much believes in the participation of chance in our artistic procedures and they don't always make something wonderful happen, but when they do, the the joy that you feel at the at what the world has presented you, the thing that the world has made happen that you didn't know was going to occur, is magnificent. Uh, 
I'm so grateful for those occasions. And, and part of, I think, being a poet in the world is being available to notice those moments, right? Because they're happening all the time. We're constantly walking through the world and poems are happening all around us and we just have to start paying attention. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to cry out of happiness, mostly. Like, just the right song is on and I'm, you know, in the car, not hitting a deer or whatever. <laughs> And I was glad that you mentioned a moment in the book where you're writing a blurb for someone else's book and you go to a pub and it's just like, I think David Bowie is playing yeah. and you just like start crying from happiness. Well, the, the thing that really put me over the edge is that I saw somebody who was wearing um, beige pants and a matching beige visor. <laughs> and I just loved them. I loved that they, they made that choice. They woke up in the morning <laughs> And they put on their beige pants and their beige, their beige visor, and then they went out. That's good. <laughs> those are like the, but those are sort of the beautiful moments of life, right? So I, I guess my point is, and maybe your point in the book is that not all crying has to be because of feeling, you know, sad emotions. Oh, yeah. This is kind of a great thing about tears is that, there, so there's three kinds. There's basil, which are always in your eyes. They lubricate them. There's irritant that you shed if you chop an onion or get dust in your eye. And then there's psychogenic or emotional tears. And that's everything. Every feeling, every feeling is a psychogenic tear. And so I, I love that. And they all have the same chemical composition, protein content, they're all kind of from this just like emotion vat. We don't have to separate out, you know, tears of anger, tears of joy, tears of sorrow. They're all, they're all there. And I always think that, you know, my, my ability to analyze them because of all that I've read and all that I've learned will somehow change the fact of them happening. And it just doesn't. <laughs> they just still come. Yeah, sometimes I notice little things, but for the most part, you know, when you cry, you cry, no matter how much you've read. Was this book cathartic to write for you, to, to really just look at it? I know you said it hasn't changed the amount of time you spend crying on a regular day, but was it good to understand it more? Catharsis implies release, mm. right? And for me, the things that I went through, the feelings that I had, they very often remain or return to me. Um, the feelings of sorrow or despair that I experienced as I wrote this book. But the reading, the conversations, the understanding that I developed from this project means that I also have something else to hold in my body alongside it. It is richer and it is deeper. And though I still feel that despair sometimes, I'm grateful for the complicated way that it can hold itself in my body now. Wow. It's a great book. It's called The Crying Book. It's by Heather Crystal. Heather, thank you so much for being on Livewire. Thank you. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines offers one more taste of summer with nonstop flights from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Aloha, Alaska. More at alaskaair.com. 
This is Live Wire Radio coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon. This week our theme is In Our Feelings, and we asked <laughs> the crowd here at the Alberta Rose to tell us what they do to cheer themselves up, and they submitted those answers, and Elena Passarello, you've been collecting them up. What are you seeing? Here's one from Celeste. Celeste likes to blast some Beck and clean the house while singing Two Turntables and the Laundry Done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing better than changing a song. I, I have been working on this interview with the actor Danny Trejo. Oh, yeah. But I have now turned it into the song Johnny Angel in Danny my mind. Danny Trejo. Yeah. How, How I love, love him. Me. I just walk around singing Danny Trejo to the tune of Johnny Angel. <laughs> That's good. So I'm doing well, I think, is the takeaway from that yeah. anecdote. You're crushing it. <laughs> okay, what else do people do to make themselves happy? Sharon says, I like to watch Great British Bake Off in the bathtub. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's good. We have this, I don't know, the cable set up now where you can watch it on your laptop or tablet. Uh-huh. And boy, I got a whole situation. I get a bath going. I put the laptop on the toilet. Oh, da- dangerous? Or I watch, no, the lid's down. Okay. I watch, I watch my sports. The dog has no idea what's going on. She is terrified. She thinks I'm drowning every time I try to rinse my hair. <laughs> Any others that are striking your fancy? This is just sort of a, I think, a really good piece of advice for all of us. Take it from Jody. Fire up YouTube karaoke and sing in bed. Yeah. This is Livewire Radio. Our next guest is one of the funniest, smartest people I know, so it's not surprising that his latest project is fascinating and funny. What might be surprising, though, is that it's a book of obituaries. It's called Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. In it, Mo Rocca manages to illuminate the lives of people and things in the way only he can. He's also an Emmy-winning correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Please welcome Mo Rocca to Livewire. Mo, this book and also the podcast, uh, Mobituaries, they're both so great. I'm curious, though, for people that maybe aren't familiar, other than the fact that you wrote it, what makes something a mobituary versus a standard obituary? Well, it's my appreciation for someone or something that didn't get the send-off it deserved or didn't get any send-off at all or I don't think is remembered in the way that it should be. But it's basically anything I'm interested in, and it just fits in that format. How much of this is because you're interested in obituaries, and how much is it because Mobituary works as a play on your name? Like, could this have been a podcast about Moberlin College or the film Mo Brother, Where Art Thou? I know. I'm so happy my parents didn't name me Cecil because Mo just works with so many different things, like the Mo you know, vocabulary. I mean, I can just fit it into so many different things. So yeah. that's a, that was a very 
that was a surprisingly big part of this. So, <laughs> so I have to admit. But you do, you have always been fascinated with obituaries, right? You make a compelling argument for why they matter in the book. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, my father loved obituaries, and my father was not a gloomy or morbid person at all. Uh, and, um, and he had a real sense of the romance of life. Um, and a, any good obituary writer, I didn't make this up, will say that an obituary is really about somebody's life and not about their death. I'm, I'm more interested in the beginnings of people's lives anyway. I'm not really that interested in how they die, um, unless it's Chang and Ang, because that was kind of wild. The, the, you want to talk about that a little bit? That's one of the chapters in the book, the sort of where the term Siamese twin started. Right, yeah, Ch Chang and Ang were the conjoined twins, and I grew up in the 70s, and I knew them from, it was either a Guinness Book of World's Records, was that it, or a Guinness Book, and there's this picture that everyone seems to know of them, uh, and they just had this amazing, amazing lives. They were born in S Siam, what is now Thailand, uh, and as teenagers came to America basically as indentured servants, and they were um, really two two of the first Asians in America, if not the two first, and uh, and were the first two of the first very famous entertainers. Um, they predated P.T. Barnum, um, and they had these amazing lives. They managed to win their freedom uh, and really kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, find wives. They married sisters in North Carolina, uh, where they settled, um, and they raised families. Uh, they had 21 children between the two of them. Um, Chang sired Tan and Ang um, edged him out with 11. And, um, and uh, um, they also owned slaves, which um, was the part of, you know, when you're hearing their story, it's like you're with them, you're with them, you're loving them, you're loving them, and oh, why did you have to go and do that? I mean, you just sort of hit a brick wall there. But I actually, I thought that that made the story um, richer and more important in a way, because they're kind of, um, I call that chapter uh, death of, of an American story, because they, they sort of kind of encapsulate so much of America, the good and the bad and the ugly of, of it all in this story about immigration, entertainment, and this dark side. So it didn't just have to be people who lived an exemplary life. It's like people that lived real lives and were complicated. Yeah, and they were extraordinary. I mean, they, they, it was extraordinary, the, the, the lives that they lived. But yes, um, and I mean, and I'm interested in people that I think um, uh, have been caricatured. I mean, I was really drawn to the story of Billy Carter, of Jimmy Carter's younger brother, mm -hmm. because we all remember him um, as a cartoon, and we remember Billy Beer, which, um, which incidentally was really terrible beer. <laughs> now, for the uh, like eight listeners we have under the age of forty, <laughs> will you refresh? Will you refresh their memory or explain, uh, like Billy Carter? and Jimmy Carter and kind of why, where Billy Carter was in the culture? So J Jimmy Carter had this incredibly colorful family. He had a, a mother named Miss, they called, she was called Miss Lillian at the age of 68. She went to India with the Peace Corps. And the, all the siblings, there were four, the children that she had were very different. I mean, Jimmy was a star at the Naval Academy and, you know, like a Boy Scout. The sister Gloria was named Female Motorcyclist of the Year, I think in, <laughs> in 1978. Um, sister Ruth was a faith healer. Uh, and then Billy was 13 years younger than Jimmy, was the, the last. And he was 
kind of outrageous. And he um, wore these big blocky black framed glasses. Um, and uh, he drank a lot. He smoked a lot. He was very funny. Um, and I think he was an asset to Jimmy Carter at the beginning because if Jimmy was sort of, you know, that city on a hill, Billy was that dive bar in that city that you want to go and throw a couple back at that we all need. Um, and But eventually, you know, as little brothers do, he started consorting with representatives of the government of Libya and got his brother... <laughs> got his brother into trouble. I mean, and I think that my brother has done that in fairness. <laughs> it happens. Um, I think that presidential families are like, you know, sort of ordinary families, but on steroids. They're sort of, you know, we, we see these dynamics kind of really magnified. And, um, you know, and Jimmy Carter at the worst point of his presidency um, with hostages in Iran and a an economy spiraling out of control had to deliver an hour long primetime live news conference explaining to the country why his little brother was meddling in the Middle East. Um, and in the midst of that, Billy Carter admitted that he was an alcoholic and he spent the last very proud chapter of his life crisscrossing the country, um, advocating for people and talking to people who could relate to him about their struggles with alcoholism. And um, he was, you know, I talked to President Jimmy Carter about him and he described you know, a funny, complicated, really decent guy. And I wanted to sort of flesh him out because obviously he wasn't a cartoon in real life. Uh, we're talking to Mo Rocca. His new book is Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. Um, one of the chapters is about Von Meter, right. who, uh, again, for some of our listeners, might not be a familiar name, uh, but you also did an episode of the podcast about about this. And it I, I didn't know the whole story. It's fascinating. So Von Meter was a not great comedian, but who had an uncanny ability to do an impression of President John F. Kennedy. And he became wildly famous for doing this. Um, and he was the lead in an album called The First Family. When comedy albums were new, it quickly became, for its time, the highest selling album of all time. It was for a while. And then when President Kennedy was murdered on November 22nd, 1963, Von Meter disappeared. And he lived almost significantly for another 40 years, like in the desert, basically. And we found in the CBS News archives a 90-minute interview that he gave shortly before he died, basically telling his story and what, what it was like to be alive but be thought of as dead. And it was so harrowing. Um, and... But was, what was also interesting is that Von Meter, looking back at the old tapes of him performing on Jack Parr, that he would do his imitation and afterwards he would say, go into his normal voice and say, I just want to say, Mr. President, and to, you know, to, and to all the American people, I respect the office and who you are, and I hope it's been okay what I've done. He would essentially apologize, and and it was... Just so it, it, I was drawn to the story because it was just such a different time. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so. One of the, my favorite parts of the book is that the animals that serve as appliances in the Flintstones get a shout out. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad that's in this book. There's not. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, like can opener bird that says, it's a living. Right. They always say, it's a living. It's like the. 
that kills me every yeah. time. Beats working. Yeah. yeah. The woolly mammoth the dishwasher. Yeah. I love the woodpecker camera. Yeah. yeah. There's also this amazing chapter about the black congressman of reconstruction. Which sounds like the name of a funk band. But yes. <laughs> Again, this was something I, I learned from, from this book. Uh, can you talk about them and talk about Robert Smalls in particular? Okay. So, the, so after the Civil War during Reconstruction, when four million former enslaved people are made citizens and African-American men are given the right to vote, um, the voting rate is about 90% participation. It's extraordinary. I mean, the, the enthusiasm and the hopefulness, which makes the ultimate failure of Reconstruction so heartbreaking when you go back and realize this, and there were a number of men, that black men, who were elected to the U.S. Congress, two to the Senate, and depending on how you measure Reconstruction, about 14 to the House. More than half of them had been enslaved 10 years before. So it's just remarkable, like this, this tectonic sort of shift. Um, Robert Smalls was one who was in South Carolina. He was um, the pilot of a ship called the Planter, the, um, and the Planter had been taken over by the Confederacy and used to mine Charleston Harbor. He looked like the ship's captain, and the cap ship's captain, he sort of in stature, um, and people used to joke about that. And so one night, the captain of the ship went out drinking with the crew, and so Robert Smalls had spent a long time planning this escape. And he knew all the passcodes, the whistles, because this is, was such a fortified harbor. And one by one made it through. And with In the family, boat. Like, they the untied boat. the boat and were like, peace. Yes. In the, exactly. Like, boop, boop. And, like, uh, yeah, all these different, these whistles. I managed to get through. And then at the end, Fort Sumter was the last one. And Fort Sumter, where the Civil War had begun, it couldn't have been more symbolic. Um, and once they were beyond cannon range, you know, it was full steam ahead. It was still flying a Confederate flag as it went towards the Union blockade, and Robert Smalls' wife thought really quickly, took it down, and put up a white sheet, um, and, uh, and he became a hero. It's not just, you know, in a modern-day exaggeration. He was a very big deal and went to see President Lincoln to argue on behalf of the participation of, of, um, of African Americans in the Union Army, uh, and um, he eventually became a U.S. House member from South Carolina. Um, and you find out that a lot of these black congressmen, um, there were white members of Congress who were open to them and socialized with them in Washington at the time in the 1870s. It's, I found that doing this book that um, I like to be generous anyway in looking at the past. I think there's a tendency sometimes to think of the past as equal to being backward, and mm -hmm. that's not always the case. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really dangerous to look at history as this trajectory that's always moving toward progress when it seems uh, like looking at history that way um, makes it really difficult to pay attention to it as a teaching tool. Right? I agree. And I also think it's kind of smug also right. to think, right, that we're so much better. Um, one more uh, story, uh, obituary from the book that I, I, I was unfamiliar with but was totally fascinated by is the story of Elizabeth Jennings, who you call the Rosa Parks of New York. Well, what happened with her? Uh, so Elizabeth Jennings is, um, and let me just first tell you how I found this story because I think it tells you a lot about why the story is not known. Um, I am a presidential history buff, and I was reading uh, 
a book of presidential trivia, and in it, there was a piece of trivia about Chester Allen Arthur. When he was a young lawyer, he represented an African-American woman named Elizabeth Jennings, who in 1854 was kicked off of a horse-drawn streetcar in lower Manhattan. It was the public transportation of its day. And she hired Chester Allen Arthur, and they sued the railway company, and they won. This is, and, and it led to the integration of New York's transportation system shortly after the Civil War. And what was kind of wild and haunting about this is it was almost exactly 100 years before Rosa Parks. And I couldn't believe that I was finding out about her through a Chester Allen Arthur trivia book, basically. That's where, I, where this was hidden. Um, and it's, it is a remarkable story. Um, uh, and what she did then, sort of, uh, they won in civil court, and, and all the other railway companies followed suit very quickly um, to conform with the ruling. Um, and, uh, and it spread to other cities. In, in fact, Robert Smalls, who we talked about earlier to bring it full circle, um, helped lead the movement then in Philadelphia. Um, around the same time. This is a, kind of a corny question and one that you have been asked a lot as you've been promoting this book, but uh, if somebody was to be eulogizing you and you're a young man full of life, Mo, you have so many years in front of you, but if on the off chance that I outlive you, let's say, and I'm, I'm doing a burr bit of you, which doesn't work as well as a Mo bit. It's got a little, that's all right. What, what would you like, how would you like Perfect. to be remembered? What would you hope would be in there? You think a lot about the remembering the lives other people lived. Well, I'd, um, I'd like the first line to be um, Mo Rocca, comma, who made people interested in things they didn't expect to be interested in, comma, died today. He was 135, and... Um, <laughs> And I'd like the, I'd like the headline to just be, no Mo. <laughs> Mo Rocca, the book is Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. Thank you. All right, Mo, it is clear that you are very smart. You know a lot about obituaries and, and people uh, who've lived interesting lives. Uh, we're wondering, though, how deep your knowledge goes about inanimate objects uh, and who have also lived interesting lives. To find out, we're going to play a little game we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. Livewire house band. Okay, that's great. Let me hear your body talk. Um, okay, your mobituaries remember people from the past, but of course you also branch out into other things like station wagons, McDonald's promotional glasses, um, other things that have shuffled off this mortal coil. So we thought we'd continue to pull on that thread. We're going to give you the obituary of some objects that have died over the years. And we're going to read you a brief obit, and then you have to guess what it is for. We're calling this inanimate obits. Oh, I love that. Okay? Yeah. All right. Born into a powerful family, it sparkled like the dawn and had a clear sense of taste. It lived just one year, fizzling out in 1993, but it lives on in our hearts. 
Oh, is it in New Coke? No, Close. No, oh, 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 no, Pepsi. Crystal Pepsi. Crystal Pepsi is yes, absolutely Crystal right. Pepsi. It was promoted as a healthy and pure diet product at the time. Right. Which is really something. And was uh, it dangerous or was it, why did it fizzle? It just... I th- my sense is that it, it was, there was some sort of uncanny valley yeah. of clear cola. Yeah. Hence the Saturday Night Live uh, great taped <laughs> bit, which was clear gravy that they poured all over <laughs> things right. to the same Van Halen song, right. which really pointed up how your brain is trained to see some things as being opaque and not clear. All right, how about this? Born in 1889, its services were called upon by people near and far. There were 2 million in 1999, with fewer than 5% of those surviving today. Oh, my gosh. And it, and it started it's in It's not 18- polar bears. And, no, and I was going to say, it started in the 1870s? 1889. Born in 1889, its it services were called upon... It was born in, it's not a, it's not a Surrey with a fringe on the top. No, I'm just trying to think of things that would have started back then, but then those, those peaked much earlier. There were two, two million, million Surreys with fringes on top. <laughs> those chicks and de- ge- geese and ducks better scurry. Right, these are a lot. Um, um, so 1889 and then in 1999, there were two million um, Osmonds. No, I don't, I'm just, I don't, I'm trying to think what then was. Uh, how about this? Uh, some people might call them a glass case of emotion. Ron Burgundy, for instance. Oh, uh, anchors? <laughs> Let's just say, where would Superman be without one of these? Oh, oh, where would Superman be? Um, oh, capes. No, uh, <laughs> phone booths, for telephone phone booths, booths, telephone booths. Of course, sorry, of course. Yes, yes, telephone booths. That is crazy that there were still two million in 1999. Well, you, we must not confuse telephone booths with those phone kiosks. I did a story on this for Sunday morning, but right, there were a lot yeah. of the phone kiosks, yeah. and they made a joke about that, I think, in one of the Superman movies, because he went up to one and realized he wouldn't be able to change in, huh. in one of those. Here's another inanimate obit for Mo Rocca. Born in 1990 as the comedic forerunner to a very successful, younger, dramatic sibling, it was ridiculed for the entirety of its short life, leaving us early after just three months. Wait, is this Bo Bridges? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you said somebody... Yeah. Born in 1990... Oh, born in 1990. Okay. 1990 as the comedic forerunner to a very successful, younger, dramatic sibling. Okay, younger, dramatic. It, this thing that we're memorializing, was ridiculed for the entirety of its short life, it left us early after just three months. Oh, okay, 1990. 1990. Um, is it, uh, boy, is it, is it like a, a VHS type thing? No, it's... it's a- I'll give you a hint. If there were a paternity test, Stephen Bochco would be the father. Oh, it, it, the, 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 the musical series Cops. Uh, it, it, Cop Rock. Yes, Cop Rock. Cop Rock. Cop Rock. Cop Rock. Cop Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was... A really bad idea, it turns out. One of the, one of the more uh, spectacular disasters in television history, yeah, right? I believe. Yeah. Stephen Bochco's attempt at a cop-themed musical. <laughs> okay, one last one. From the moment its lights went on, things started going wrong. Injuries, overages, scorn. 
It tried to swing over it all, but eventually passed away in 2014. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to pay off its more than $60 million of debt. Whoa. Um, uh, um, six oh, God, this is very hard. Um, um, $60 million. Uh, lights going on. I thought of black light posters. I thought of... Uh, How about this? Here's a hint. You too was involved in this. Not the German sub, the band. Oh, oh, Spider-Man the musical. That's right. Yeah, and Turn I off to, the dark. Yes, I actually, I saw it. And, and Wait, we, you saw it? I did see the original one. Yeah. How was it? I, I didn't think it was that terrible, but the awful thing is you could tell that everybody was there kind of hoping that there would be an injury. <laughs> because That's the main appeal of this show for people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mo, you actually did really well. You, you, you took your time getting there, but I think you got every single question right. Congratulations. Mo Rocca, thank you for being on Livewire. The book is Mobituaries. All right, we got to take a quick break. Uh, this is Livewire. We will be right back. Hey, special thanks this episode to Marsha Truman of Portland, Oregon. Marsha is part of the Livewire member community. She's been generously supporting our show with a donation each month. Thank you, Marsha. We are so appreciative of that because it's genuinely how we are able to keep this show going. So if you're enjoying today's show, a big thanks to Marsha Truman. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our musical guest this hour has been splitting his time between Portland and Paris, which makes total sense because his sound is very international. It's very, you just walked into a smoky Paris club and you're like, what is it that I am hearing right now, and where has this been all of my life? He is a regular guest vocalist with Pink Martini. His solo album of original works is called Falling in Love and Learning to Love Myself. Please welcome Jimmy Harad to Livewire. <laughs> Jimmy, welcome. Uh, I, get, I should say welcome back to the show because you have performed on this show with Pink Martini. Yeah, that was, that was special. It was my first time doing anything like this, and this is my first time talking at anything like this. So, Do you get nervous? You're an amazing singer and musician, but does the talking about the music thing make you nervous? It's the talking in general. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was texting a friend today. I was like, oh, I'm nervous about this evening. She's like, you do this all the time. And it's like, mm-mm. It's a lot. You know, it's different. You just go out there, and you sing, and you... Run away. <laughs> That's my normal prerogative, but this is, uh, this is really special, so I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to hear you sing and play piano. So what song are we going to hear? So I'm going to do a song of mine uh, that's on my album called uh, Anything at All. It's about someone I used to work with who I had a big crush on. He worked in the kitchen um, as a cook, uh, but we became really good friends. We actually wrote the song together. Wow. So that's true friendship, people. So... Uh, all right. Yeah, this is anything at all. Okay, let's hear it. This is going to be Jimmy Harad here on Livewire.
me fall into a million little pieces Colored pink for I was once pure and white But blushing leaves a rosy cheek You think you know me But I doubt you will You haven't had the chance to feel the way I feel I would give you what I offer if you ever were to ask No, I've let you see me chase any car that's moving past You think you know me, but I doubt you will You haven't had the chance to feel the way I feel Feel for you You think you know me, but I doubt you can No one's ever took the chance to hold my hands And you'll be another story in my memoir and in life How I loved a handyman, a strapping lad who will deny If you think I'm funny, but I doubt you will When you start to notice that what I feel is real Jimmy Harrod, right here on Livewire. Thank you. 
You can also hear him on the new Pink Martini single tomorrow. His own album of original music, Falling in Love and Learning to Love Myself, is out now. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A big thanks to our guests, Mo Rocca, Heather Crystal, and Jimmy Harrod. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Springs, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Randy Hastings is our technical supervisor. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Sarah Nygbor of Beaver Creek, Oregon, and Hannah Davidson of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.